Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation around the issues affecting those who invent, manage or own intellectual property. This episode follows the release of Appleyard Lees' inaugural Inside Green Innovation Progress Report 2021. The report analyses patent filings across several areas of green innovation to shed light on the state of progress in the development of green technologies. How close are we to finding the technological solutions that will be so important for achieving sustainability? Where and by whom are these innovations being developed? Report authors and patent attorneys, partner David Walsh and senior associates Chris Mason and Paul Bainan discuss key insights from the report and the complexities of analysing patent data. Yeah, thanks, Charlie, and welcome as well from me. What is our Inside Green Innovation Report? Well, to put it in a nutshell, it's a data-driven analysis of the state of progress in green innovation. And it all came about because we wanted to explore how we, as patent attorneys, could contribute to the, to the race to green conversation. The conversation about humanity's ongoing efforts to address the environmental impacts of worldwide industrial activities. We had to think about it and we decided that we wanted to try and get behind the rhetoric as we saw it and see if we could shed some light on actual green technologies that have been developed around the world. At the end of the day, we are legal professionals. However, we felt that as patent attorneys, and in particular as private practice patent attorneys, we have somewhat of a unique vantage point perhaps when it comes to technological development. And of course, we do care deeply about the science. We, we were all scientists once. We believe, in essence, in humanity's ability to innovate our way out of problems, partly because we see examples of it every day across a wide range of fields. And these qualities combine quite well, we thought, with our ability to understand the language of patents and to navigate the vast reservoirs of information that are patent databases. Now, one of the great benefits of the patent system is that it requires a public disclosure of new innovations. We decided that our contribution would be to spend some time exploring this reservoir, using our skills and our knowledge to try and uncover insights, to hopefully pull back the curtain, you know, if only a little, on the progress of green innovation, on some of the solutions that are emerging. Now, green innovation can be defined most broadly as really any technology aimed at limiting negative environmental impacts. We wanted to focus on what we judged to be some of the most pressing and widely relatable issues facing us today. And in the end, this boiled down to plastics, food production and energy. I think, I think it's interesting that the report nicely has it, you know, six chapters and actually two of those chapters each address one of those three areas. We could have picked any, any number of areas there because actually reducing greenhouse gases is a, is a massive field. And, and obviously there are, areas like solar panels for instance and direct and indirect carbon capture which we could have looked at i think you know we chose plastics for the polluting aspect because that's a very hot topic at the moment but obviously a number of other materials can pollute the natural environment i mean in terms of land use i mean agriculture seems fairly spot on really to me just to talk about it in more general terms like like you've done as well david in that every invention that lands on my desk the minute has some green aspect towards it and even if it's just a minor part and a very small consideration of the invention in that it covers some way of operating more efficiently or 
reducing pollutants in, in some way, there's always an aspect to it one way or another. So like you were saying about the fact that we could have picked any number of technologies and, and any number of things to focus on with this report. I think it is such a wide-ranging topic that there was lots of opportunities to discuss lots of different topics. And I think we focused on some really interesting ones. I am conscious that I don't think we've really sat down properly and reflected on the report since it published last year, really. It's been, everything's been so busy. So it's going to be interesting, really, to hear, to hear your thoughts, I think. Yeah, I, mean, I was interested in comparing some of these areas, actually. And, and it'll be interesting going forward. Well, we looked at Total Families file, didn't we, in all six chapters, and we did notice some differences, I think, when we were discussing this, that um, most of the areas have a similar level of filing. But in, Paul, was it in your, one of your areas? Yeah, lithium-ion battery filings have, say, um, a huge number of filings. I think there was about 30,000 priority filings in, in China alone, yeah, since 2011. So there's a huge amount of filings in that uh, technology area at the minute. China obviously has a number of state-sponsored applications so if we look at from a commercial perspective we still have a high number of filings in that area do you see that as being led by a small number of companies or because I, I noticed in the plastics and bioplastics field i felt that some of the big players were leading that technology and i did see lots of opportunities for smaller companies but i wasn't 100 percent sure they were taking full advantage of it i just wondered if you'd picked up anything in that respect in the energy storage field yeah, it, it was a similar story for lithium-ion batteries in, in China in that there was, like you say, a relatively small number of companies that were accounting for a lot of those filings. It was interesting that, in fact, in the long-term energy storage solutions, in the pumped hydro um, energy section on it, we saw that um, actually China, again, was was accounting for, for quite a high num- number of filings. But when we looked at the compressed air energy storage, China was actually lagging behind a number of other countries. It was Japan and, um, and Germany who were leading the way. It did feel like across all these different topics, it felt like China were, were largely leading the way with it. I, th- I thought it was quite interested in that in a number of these topics, it was interesting looking at the number of applications that were made outside of China from Chinese priority applications. And I think I think they dropped off quite significantly, especially in the in the plastics sections of this report. So that's perhaps an indication, like you say, David, that maybe there's some state-sponsored incentives being offered to these Chinese companies, and, and perhaps these technology areas aren't of as much relevance outside China. But it was definitely an interesting theme, I thought, throughout the whole report, was the fact that, that China was leading the way. You just couldn't ignore it, could you? It was it, you know, smacked you in your face. In most of the fields that I think a lot of the sections we ended up having to divide the charts out between all of the world including china and all of the world excluding china just because the patterns are often so different in in some fields you'd get a what is seemingly a sharp escalation in filings in the last five years but then if you took out china it would the pattern would be flat or dropping and um i suppose the question would then be well why why are you taking out the chinese filings and we've already touched on the reason for that and I don't think we need to get into too much detail here, but essentially it's, we suspect, and it's not just us, but I think there's a general feeling in the profession that a lot of the Chinese filings are driven by state-offered incentives and mostly cash incentives. You file a patent application, you get some cash, and that really removes the risk in the cost of filing an application. Normally it's a, it's a leap of faith to file a patent application. You're protecting something that you're almost by definition not yet generating revenue for. Whereas if that link's broken, if that risk is broken by knowing 
that it's going to be a revenue generator just to file a patent application, well, well, why wouldn't you? We can see the outcome of that in some of the data, you know, a very small proportion, generally speaking, of these Chinese filings in the last five, 10 years, a very small proportion are turning into international patent families compared to what we'd expect to be the average. Yeah. I think that's the important point, isn't it, Chris? Because if it's state-sponsored, that's not necessarily a bad thing in terms of uh, generating new innovation. And if the patents aren't filed outside China, then it begs the question, what are these patents for? If they don't see this as an exportable technology, the problems we've discussed earlier in the podcast and in the report are global problems. You know, solutions need to be global solutions. And to the extent that the patent system and that's all we can comment on. To the extent the patent system will reflect a global solution, we would expect to see filings in other countries, Europe, US, Japan, South Korea, at least the G7 countries, if not the G20. And if they're not being filed in those countries, then you've got to beg the question, is it really a global solution to greenhouse gases, to pollution, to land use, etc.? You could argue that they're just China's just making it all free for use and, and those solutions will be adopted. I think that's right. And I think from a, my own personal experience of drafting patent applications and, and prosecuting patent applications is that in the past few years, I'm noticing that I'm getting a lot more Chinese patent applications cited as prior art against the patent applications in which I'm, I'm working. And often it can be very specific examples or embodiments. And the scope of those Chinese applications are, are relatively narrow, but can be tricky to navigate around. I, I loved it, Paul, when you suggested looking at the long-term energy storage. It isn't something that hadn't really occurred to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I think green energy production is out there and there's there's obviously lots that we could talk about for, for green energy production. But I think the flip side of the coin is what happens when you have produced that energy and where can you store it? And so I think this is perhaps a technology area that is massively increasing and of huge importance, but doesn't get quite as much airtime as the as the generation side of things. So yeah, we, we, we thought it was a, an interesting path to go down. And well, we, we found some quite interesting trends in the, in the patent data that, that came from it. I think with the compressed air and the, the pumped hydro storage, these two technology areas have been around for for a long time, and so the fact that there's there's recent spikes in in the number of filings, I think, just goes to show that sometimes these technology areas that have been around, sometimes they've still got a lot of life in them, and um, there's still a lot of innovation that we found out of it. And I thought it was interesting again with the with the short term energy storage. I think with lithium ion batteries and solid state batteries as well. I think we found was interesting is that again these technologies have been around for for a little while but i thought it was clear to see that the solid state batteries that the innovation or the number of filings was increasing exponentially over over the past number of years and whilst lithium ion there's more filings in lithium ion the solid state filings will shortly overtake the the number of filings in lithium ion and so i think again it's it's just an example about perhaps it could be government legislation and the fact that electric vehicles are coming is is being a real driver for looking to these these battery solutions and and is really driving the number of number of applications up through the roof the interesting thing is that there's not really as much of a vested interest in the current battery suppliers. Clearly, we're going to see a little bit of that, perhaps, with the moving from lithium ion to solid state. But whereas in the plastics industries, these are very well-established products, 
and companies, and I think we commented in the report that they're often very bespoke products that solve very specific problems in, in the marketplace. There are multiple plastic products that do that for, for different applications. And that means I think it's very difficult for these companies to turn the oil tanker around, if, if, if you like, because everything's been invested in their, in their current customers who have very specific requirements. So actually shifting to completely different product that's say recyclable or is a bioplastic and has all the same properties is actually quite difficult for them it's not to say that those problems can't be solved it's just it makes it more difficult economically for those companies and i think that's why legislation is very important to level the playing field it's extremely um capital intensive isn't it to make these switches they can try and tweak or develop add-ons to their current processes but i think to take things in a completely new direction. You talk about massive capital investment. I think one example that came out was Eastman Chemical Company. They've announced recently they're investing around a billion dollars in a a new plastics recycling facility in France, looking uh, for polyester renewal uh, to recycle 150,000 metric tons or so of currently hard to recycle plastic waste uh, annually. And then following that investment or in parallel with that investment, in recent years, you can see a massive increase in their pan filings in this area you know before 2019 we hadn't really seen anything from them 2019 2020 we've seen over 50 patent filings and i think that comes as a result as, as the companies are investing this money you see the innovation come from it so what i'm trying to say well the innovation will come we just need to see the investment and the commitment to the field i think i don't think it's a fact that innovation in this field is is necessarily any harder to get anywhere else it just needs people to commit and to turn their cruise liners in in, in that direction i think it's very difficult for them actually unless unless it's a level playing field i mean that's the whole one of the important aspects of cop 26 is to try and through legislation uh, make that make that possible if every plastic producer in the world got told they had to abide by certain rules had to recycle a percentage of their product or etc I have every confidence that the innovators within those companies would solve these problems. They wouldn't be at a disadvantage by doing so. But if if half the plastics producers can carry on without any responsibility and the other half have to be responsible, then that makes it very difficult for those companies to generate profit, which is ultimately what will keep them innovating and producing new products. So for me, it has to be driven by international uh, legislation. Interestingly, there is hopes that at the meeting, it's the UN environmental meeting. They're hoping to come to an agreement on plastic and plastic recycling and international agreement, which could be a game changer, really. So, Chris, on the um, the CRISPR technology section of, of this report, I thought I thought it was interesting that, that that you touched upon the the obvious use in agriculture. I thought that that one seemed very obvious to me in the fact that we can use this technology to produce more hardy hardy crops and and greater yields and the like but i thought you had an interesting line in there about the crossover with pharmaceuticals i agree with you i think um you know i love the concept of, of gene editing i think it's as, as a fan of sci-fi it's something that um you know i believe and hope that it can give us great advances in the future and you know follow it with, with a keen eye what, what are you going to have done, Chris? Oh, it's, uh, it's up in the airport. I'd have to weigh up the options, really, and uh, see, see, <laughs> <laughs> see what the options are when it comes to it. But yeah, but in terms of you know genetic editing of, of crops, I think it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating subject. Obviously, we've got a sizable global population as it is, and we've found ways through, through recent centuries to advance our agricultural sciences to allow us to feed that population. And the population is going to continue to grow, you know, in subsequent decades. And we're going to need to, again, see 
you know, step changes really, I think, in our agricultural technology to avoid, you know, there's an argument that the current food production methods are not sustainable. And you'd think it's only going to get worse as population grows and, and land use becomes more and more intensive. So can gene editing give us a, a, a way through that? You know, like I say, I hope it can. And it's great to see technologies such as CRISPR come to reality, commercial reality indeed. You know, we've got crops out there now in, in the Americas in particular using this technology. As we've kind of already touched on with this, you know, we, we can comment from the the who, the what, the where, and even the how a little bit, but we move into much more speculative territory when we start to talk about the why and we start to wonder in, about those different drivers that are at play. And I think one really interesting driver here is the regulatory side of it. Now, I'm not going to suggest that I'm an expert in regulation of gene editing in agriculture, but, you know, from what I read, it's it's fascinating to see how it appears that it may be, be falling outside normal uh, GMO regulations, um, for example, in the US. And like I say, a lot of the Americas, they they say, you know, if if the product of the CRISPR editing is not discernible from conventional plant breeding technologies, then it doesn't fall within the GMO regulations. Now in Europe, in the European Union specifically, it's gone the other way. In 2018, they said it did. Any any sort of genetic manipulation falls within the regulations. And I think interestingly as well, from our perspective at least, the UK is somewhere in the middle at the moment. So I believe that last year DEFRA um, undertook a report to try and you know get more information and work out whether Britain could allow gene editing techniques such as CRISPR to fall out of the GM regulatory framework. And I think it'd be fascinating to see how that falls out. The last section we have to touch on then is the agriculture of the future. For me, the culture of meat side, I think, is is a particularly interesting area. And um, I think it's probably a lot more in its infancy. Obviously, we hear a lot about it on the news. I don't know. Again, it's hard for me to say because I follow a lot of the, the media on it. So I don't know whether it's entering the mainstream more or I'm just becoming more aware of it. But it feels like more people are talking about it. It was interesting to really delve into the, the patent filing analytics and see what was actually going on there. Yeah, and it'd be interesting how it develops, won't it? Because, I mean, in one sense, food is is a cultural and inherited phenomena, so you could expect it to be very conservative. But in the other, on the other side, people can be quite experimental with food and quite innovative in, in their own way. So they may be quite open to to new technologies in this respect. Um, I'd be just interested how the public respond to things like cultured meat. I imagine with vertical farming, which is the other section that you covered, I'd be surprised if there's any problem with that. People perhaps don't really mind if it's grown underground without soil or or not. But I think cultured meat might take a little bit of time to take off. I think the issue with vertical farming might be less the the public perception of the product or the suitability of the product as as food, and more in terms of the environmental impact of its production. You know, there are still huge technical hurdles for both uh, cultivated meat and vertical farming, but. One of those in particular is is the amount of energy it takes to produce it. I mean, there's one thing to say that taking food production indoors inside, inside controlled environments is going to reduce pollution. But obviously, you've got a, it's far more subtle than that, isn't it? Um, the overall in, environmental impact, if it's going to end up using far more energy overall and generating pollution and emissions that way, then you're just um, solving one problem and causing another. So I think these two technology areas still very much in the infancy and I think the filings reflect that really. So I think there's still establishing economic proof of concept perhaps. Certainly, you know, nowhere near mainstream kind of mass production, mass market levels yet. 
But again, from my perspective, it feels like investment interest is picking up. Takes us nicely back to the beginning, I think, Chris, that because just because you find a solution to land use, you may then find yourself with a, a bigger problem with pollution or with generation of greenhouse gases. And I think all three areas have suffered from the same consequences. So greenhouse gas removal could result in lots of land use. I know there's um, a CO2 carbon capture technology, but it, it would demand something like 30,000 carbon capture plants across the world to start to neutralise the CO2 removal. And apart from the enormous cost of that and the tax burden, there'd be a massive amount of land use as, as well. Again, you can look at batteries and and maybe look at what the impact of those is in terms of pollution. The areas all interrelate, don't they? So you have to make sure you don't cause a new problem when you find a solution to, to one of these problems. It might be stepping away from the patent side of it a little bit, but just wonder how successful these will be. Like, I wonder how many how many vegans and vegetarians would would eat them. Like, I'm a vegetarian, and I would be all over it. I'd, I absolutely love the idea of it, but I just wonder how much in the general population these how well they'll go down again i look forward to the day where having an option of eating what is a meat product that hasn't come from animals is a, is a reality you know i'll be very happy when we get to that stage and i suppose all we can say at the moment is that we just want that to be an option don't we and we want it to enter the mainstream and become a, become a mainstream reality so that people have that choice and you know in, in the society we live in in lieu of you know regulations otherwise then the consumer choice will drive what happens well i think that's it i think you know in this report we wanted to give some reassurance perhaps that things are happening you know it's not just all rhetoric it's not just all talks about targets and what we should do there are real world things being developed at the moment that can help us to meet those targets and to address environmental issues that are being caused by our industrial activity and if that can give people some reassurance that real world things are doing and and i guess if anything like you said paul it's we wanted to back up our feeling our gut feeling and our belief that we can innovate our way out of this um, and we are starting to do so um, it's not all about the companies you know we need international cooperation government um, regulatory bodies need to be pulling in the, in the right direction as well and that's obviously a complex conversation with lots of stakeholders but i think we just wanted to try and contribute to that if anything just to show that there is real world work going on and progress being made thanks to you both uh, thanks to paul and thanks to chris i've really enjoyed discussing a subject that's very close to my heart which is green technology and particularly in relation to how it can solve the problems that we're facing of greenhouse gases uh, land use and, and, and plastic pollution and focusing on our innovators and how they're helping us solve these problems going forward so thanks for sharing this conversation with me yeah thank you david yeah, th thanks very much. I very much enjoyed learning about different technology areas that everyone else is working on. It's um, yeah, it's, it's been a really good conversation. Thanks both. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialists to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com.